Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, Episode 18B, an interview on the renaissance of Ulysses S. Grant with Joan Waugh. I'm excited to welcome Joan Waugh to the show today. Joan is a UCLA professor of 19th century America who specializes in the Civil War, Reconstruction, and the Gilded Age. She's also the author of U.S. Grant, American Hero, American Myth. And I love that title because it's fascinating to me when history becomes myth and myth becomes history and how and why do our views of historical people and events change over time. And that's what we'll dig into today, the evolving reputation of Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, Joan, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Before we dive into Grant, I would love to know what first made you interested in not just Grant, but this period of U.S. history? Kenny, I was born a nerd. (laughs) I I confess to you and your listeners, I was born a nerd. And when when I learned to read at age six, I never stopped. And when I went to the library, I felt myself drawn to biographies and histories. I don't know why. This is at a very young age. I made my mother buy me biographies of Abraham Lincoln and George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. Like you, I I was fascinated with the presidents, but I also was fascinated by Clara Barton, for example. And I remember uh, about maybe six or seven or eight being interested in the Civil War, there were lots of series that were published uh, um, by uh, four children in history. And I just, I read all of them and I became, I, I just became more and more fascinated. When I went to UCLA as an undergraduate, I majored in history and I availed myself of the very fine professors in American history. And it must be said, I expanded, I also took Uh, European history and African history, but I really was focused on U.S. history, and I wanted, I decided I wanted to do something to enter a field in which there were almost no jobs. (laughs) I decided that I would enter graduate school in history at UCLA, one of the best departments in U.S. history in the country. Of course, I would say that, but it really is, it really was true. And, and it was uh, just a pleasure for me to work with two great historians in crafting for me a, a, what would become a lifetime endeavor as a scholar and a teacher in 19th century American history. That is how I came to the place where I am now, which is somebody who's published Uh, books and and articles and essays and given many talks about 19th century history, it always seemed to me, uh, and I know that one can argue about the 18th century, and I'm I'm also fascinated by the, especially the late 18th century, but the 19th century is the seedbed of everything that became distinctly American in culture, in economics, in politics. It's all there, baby. (laughs) It's great to meet a fellow born nerd. You are at home. This is a safe space for us. <laughs> and and I, that's I, I, I want to know where my parents were hiding the Civil War children's books because I was given Hank the Cowdog instead. 
So uh, let's start diving into Grant himself, who, who is certainly alive and, and part of many of these giant 19th century moments. Uh, and let's talk about him, his presidential reputation, you know, the topic talking about how it's evolved. What was his presidential reputation when he was still alive? Well, I hope that your listeners know a little bit about Grant because he was one of the primary figures of the Civil War and uh, after uh, in Reconstruction and even into the Gilded Age. Uh, and I, I do have to work in this quote. My favorite poet of the 19th century, Walt Whitman, said, what a man he is, what a history. And that is what fascinated me and got me into uh, to studying Grant when, um, when I had to teach a civil war at UCLA and suddenly I realized I knew everything but military history and I didn't appreciate it. And, and I had to immerse myself in it and that's where I became fascinated with Grant. And naturally Grant had many careers in his life but, but two of his, the ones that we're most concerned with is as general and as president. You ask about Grant's presidential reputation when he was still alive, that is up until 1885. His reputation, it depended on who you asked, very much like today. Are you a Democrat or a Republican? Uh, there weren't a lot of independents back in those days. That was something that actually came into our political culture in the Gilded Age when there was that was carved out. But still, most families were either Republican or Democrat. It also depended if you were Black or white, or you were Southerner or Northerner, or a Westerner or Easterner. And so I think that he remained pretty popular within the Republican Party. And that popularity grew uh, the further away from his administration that he got. And that's not, that's not an unusual uh, occurrence. Sometimes uh, a president right after he leaves office is not, not necessarily popular to that generation, or, or perhaps a lot of it will be forgiven or forgotten. And I think that would be true in, in Grant's case. Remember, he was elected president in 1868. In 1872, he was reelected to the presidency with 55 0.6% of the vote, which is for that time was a huge majority. He had four fifths of the electoral ballots. And his first term, if you look at his first term from 1868 to 1872, you would say it was a success. Many two term presidents, if you're going to be successful, you better do it in your first term. <laughs> yes. As the second term is always problematical, or in the case of FDR, the fourth term. Uh, <laughs> but his first term was was marked by massive economic growth, and that growth was was fueled by railroad development, general industrial expansion. He passed the Fifteenth Amendment. He instituted in the first term a long overdue reform of Native American policy, which like most of the reforms instituted by presidents before him and after him went nowhere. But he also was known, his administration, for a peaceful settlement of the grievances with England arising from the unresolved Alabama 
claims from the Civil War. And this Treaty of Washington was widely hailed as one of the first landmark instances of the peaceful settlement of grievances, what we would call international arbitration. And I think there's something that many people wouldn't know is that Grant's administration at his urging really pursued human rights abroad. And this is particularly uh, the US government strenuously protested Russian and Eastern European pogroms against the Jews. That's fascinating, especially in the light of uh, the general order he issued during the war that is often looked at as anti-Semitic. I'm curious, can you shine a bit of a light on that? Order number 11, which is by our standards today and for a long time outrageous in which general order number 11 forbade any trade between Confederates and he singled out Jewish merchants who were selling cotton. Now there were Jewish merchants selling cotton illegally uh, and this was a huge problem with the United States and the Confederacy and uh, unfortunately in the 19th century, which there was a reflexive anti-Semitism. Yeah. Many yeah. other officers uh, besides Grant used the same wording uh, in, in their orders, but he was the commanding general in the Western theater and he was immediately reprimanded by Lincoln and he withdrew it almost immediately but it still stands as a stain on his record, a stain that wasn't, it, it wasn't a stain in the, in the 19th century. And we find that hard to believe. Yeah, gosh. So many other judgments that we render today mm-hmm. at an amazing clip on historical uh, characters and figures, they weren't the priorities back then. And we kind of have to put them in context But I have to tell you, as a scholar of Grant, and many other scholars have found this too, he was very disturbed and upset at at himself for this. And he he apologized uh, to the Jewish community. And of course, when he was running for president, I mean, there (laughs) were, uh, I mean, it it seems incredible to us today, but there were only a couple hundred thousands uh, of Jews in, United States. At yeah. Yeah. But they were voters. Yeah. And they voted for Democrats and Republicans. And Grant made efforts once he once he was a candidate to he apologized, he forged relationships. And his two terms as president were marked by an amazing effort on his part to incorporate Jewish people into the government to visit with rabbis, to make sure that they knew he was on their side and also to protest the human rights abuses so much so that uh, Jews were voted Republican in those days. Wow. And they voted for a grant. Yeah, we weren't expecting to go down that path in the interview, but it's a fascinating facet to his character and his story. So thank you for for telling me that, that history on him. But I do want to go, go. I I don't want to leave your listeners with the thought that I wouldn't address his second term, which was not as happy as his. Yes. Yeah. He was not as popular as he was 
by the time he left his presidency in 1876, as he was in 1872. The second term was marked by a rising wave of scandals, including the whiskey ring, mm-hmm. in which his collector of in, uh, internal revenue in St. Louis conspired with Grant's private secretary, a man with the wonderful name of, of Orville Babcock, <laughs> to evade taxes on distilleries. And so this defrauded the treasury out of millions and millions of dollars. And Grant was reluctant to condemn or, or believe uh, that Orville Babcock, who was an aide of his close aide and close friend during the war and during the first years of his administration, that he could do something like this. And he defended him. So that, that was bad judgment on his part. This left a taint on his administration. So it, it seems when he left office, he kind of leaves with that taint. And in fact, if, if I remember right, Rutherford B. Hayes, who's running after him, runs as a reformer to kind of try to get away from that. Now, one of the most surprising things about Grant's story is that I, I had not realized this. He was almost our first three-term president, that he was uh, put forth again in 1880. And it was really just kind of a shocker loss to James Garfield, who you know, he didn't even want to be on the ballot. I'm curious, if Grant had been nominated in 1880, do you think he had the popularity at that point in his life? His reputation was good enough that he would have won re-election? Well, that's a great question. And I I don't really know that that would be true. He never indicated in print that he wanted to run for president in 1880. He campaigned for Garfield in the North, stressing the importance of preserving and strengthening strengthening the Republican Party's uh, civil rights program for the free people. Mm -hmm. Here's what I do know. Many historians believe he would have won a third term in 1876. Mm. In fact, Republicans in Ohio, a very important state, urged him to run. But Instead, Rutherford B. Hayes won, or did he really? I mean, <laughs> yes. yes. Yes, I mean, uh, that was something we, you must have dealt with in, in one of your... Uh, that, that's going to be an upcoming episode to my listeners. That's a great little tantalizing tease of what's in store. <laughs> he won. Yes. Uh, with quotation marks. Well, Grant, after Grant left the presidency... He made what can only be described as a triumphal tour of the world from Mm -hmm. 1877 to 79. He was hailed by millions across Europe, India, China, and Japan as a military hero and a leader of an emerging democratic global power that he himself helped to secure. And I think that he possibly might have won the presidency in 1880. But it wasn't to be. It wasn't to be because there were too many, uh, too many of the politicians in the Republican Party who just who just didn't want another grant term. So he famously retired to New York City. He lost his entire savings in a financial scandal and was reduced to poverty. And as you know, he earned to earn money. He agreed to read us. a series of articles for the Battles and Leaders magazine series. And then he was persuaded to write his memoirs in which Mark Twain served as his editor. 
And all this happened just as he was diagnosed with fatal throat cancer. And I have to say it to those of your listeners who have not read his memoirs, give them a try. He's so easy to read. Yes. Yeah. It really tells a great story. It's full of humor as well as a riveting narrative of the war. And of course, one has to realize he has a point of view. He has an yes. argument and yeah. you may agree or disagree with it, but it's full of insight and wisdom and little gems that are embedded throughout the 800 plus pages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was my uh, high school reading. I picked that one up and, and you're right that it's very good. I wasn't reading them at six or seven like you, but. <laughs> you can say that as, much, as many hits as his reputation has suffered and even the stereotype of Grant is hard to shake even now, that is one part of his career, his military memoirs, that has been absolutely a bestseller. It's both history and literature. It's, it's really a standard work that you need to read if you want to educate yourself on the Civil War. So Grant dies in 1885, and it sounds like he's relatively popular through the end of his life. He publishes a memoir and that certainly gets his point across, but his reputation also, it, it starts to take a bit of a thrashing in the decades that follow, right? So can you walk me through how his reputation evolved and why in the decades after his death? I will. I'd be, it's a familiar story to me. And I, I want to make the point that at his death and for some time after, I would say until the late 1920s, U.S. Grant was the most famous of all Americans at home and abroad. More than a million people watched his funeral procession in New York City in August of 1885. And another million uh, were there for the dedication of his massive tomb in Manhattan in 1897. In fact, Grant's tomb is the largest in North America. And <laughs> it remained New York City's most popular tourist site until 1929. Whoa, that is some cool facts. And, and it's it's... Interesting because 1929 is really when the last number of veterans, Civil War oh, veterans, yeah. start dying off. It, you know, they had died off for some time, but but that was that was really the passing of that generation. So I guess what you want to know is how did Grant, the savior of the Union, next to Lincoln, become Grant, the butcher, the drunk? and the corrupt, incompetent president. Mm -hmm. I single out a couple of reasons for your audience here. And one is that the ex-Confederates begin to write history. Mm -hmm. and, and why could they write history? Why could they erect monuments? The answer comes from Grant and Lincoln and other leaders in the North. The point of the Civil War was to reunite the Union. Mm. Once the Union was reunited, the United States started a process almost immediately where ex-Confederates would be able to have their citizenship restored. Hmm. Thus, they could vote. They could write any history that they want. They could commemorate the Civil War in any way they wanted to. That's why these monuments are still standing today, probably not for much longer. <laughs> anyway, they started to write history that history can be consolidated into the 
the phrase, the lost cause, which glorified Confederate defeat and elevated Robert E. Lee as the great military chieftain of the Civil War. And as a part and parcel of that, somebody who stood for the Union like U.S. Grant had to be destroyed. He had to be destroyed. He was nothing but a butcher. He and Lincoln just threw, as if this didn't happen in the Confederacy as well, they just didn't care about their men. They just, they just sacrificed them in order to win. It wasn't about talent as a general. It was the ability to, to put in the strategy of attrition, just killing your men. And sooner or later, they were going to lose. So that is the lost cause, but the lost cause also addressed reconstruction. What was Grant during the lost cause? He agreed with the Republicans, with the congressional Republicans who uh, impeached Andrew Johnson mm -hmm. and Grant agreed with them. He agreed to implement a reconstruction program that was already law by the time Grant became president. He joined with the Republican dominated Congress to impose harsh measures on the South. So he was a dictator, a military dictator in that regard. And it must be said that many in the North, especially the Democrats, but also some Republicans started to agree with this line of reasoning. Grant's presidency to many in the North, as well as the South, became a caricature. What's interesting to me is I traced in textbooks, in major te textbooks, in high schools and colleges, I read them. Oh, yeah. God almighty. <laughs> <laughs> I never liked textbooks very much. I, I recently co-wrote a textbook on the Civil War, which is, is great. It's <laughs> and it's not a thousand pages. So, that, mm -hmm. so that's good. Anyway, I traced how they, um, the textbooks that were national textbooks. Yeah, yeah. Not South, just South now um, treated Grant and they treated him very much like the lost cause people that he was, that he was a butcher, that he epitomized modern war. Cause you have to remember the textbook industry became huge after World War I. World War I was an unpopular war, became one. It just, it just the idea of the civil war is just like World War I, throwing soldiers these impossible situations uh, where too many men are killed. Anyway, Grant's political enemies in the Republican Party in 1872 started a third party. They were called the Liberal Republicans. Their motto was home rule for the South. And that is against his reconstruction policy, against the North imposing its will on the South in order to make sure Republican governments stay in the reconstructed states. Reconstruction, the bringing together of the country after the war and reincorporating the 11 Southern states into uh, the United States again. That was a great puzzle. How do you reincorporate Southern whites while at the same time doing justice to blacks? If the, GOP had any future at all, the Republican Party was going to be with the 80% of their voting base that was black. But again, the negative image of Grant as general and as president found its way into mainstream textbooks. And they always quoted 
Henry Adams. Do you know who Henry Adams is? Yeah, he's a historian and a former office seeker, I believe, right? Yes, a disappointed office seeker, as we would say. Bingo. <laughs> His quote, quote, a great general might be a baby politician. <laughs> I was so sick of that quote by the time. <laughs> and I do have another quote for you from a journalist in the late 19th and early 20th century, and he wrote this in the early 20th century, quote, calumny has fallen upon the memory of Grant with Pompeian fury, so that to tell the truth about him sounds like unreasoning adulation, end of quote. And maybe that's not the way we talk today, <laughs> but what he's saying is that the, the hatred for Grant, the, the bitterness, the anger is so great that you can't really be an historian anymore. You cannot go back and look at the context at, at, and try and understand the decisions that he made and his administration made. May, may I ask a question? The thing I've always wondered about the lost cause is why wasn't there pushback from like Northern historians? Well, there were uh, at that time with the lost cause really uh, sprang up even before the war was over, but after the war was over, you had a number of former generals, former officers, and journalists who really had their messaging straight. They built on the real feelings of loss and destructions that so many Southerners experienced. White, I'm talking about white Southerners. Yeah, they yeah. lost all their property. I mean, their land was devastated, their economy gone forever. Mm -hmm. The cotton crop would recover and be a major player, but it would never be, it would never be possible to grow cotton like they did before because they didn't have the labor system that they had. The land was not arable. So out of that real genuine feeling of loss and tragedy and the fact that more and more Southerners as the 1860s turned into the 1870s and 80s were restored their citizenship rights and could vote democratic mm -hmm. and basically pushed out the Republicans in one government after another. And that's, that's a whole story with yeah. Grant's efforts to bring justice to African-Americans at the same time to reconcile the South. It, it didn't work, but it's a very complex story. And the gist of it is that Southerners relied on romanticism and Northerners receding mem bitter memories of the war. And there became, uh, it didn't happen overnight by any means, but it became more, uh, more understandable. Their cause around sympathy. You had the veterans reunions, North and South, and, and it gradually grew into, we had the best soldiers in the world. I mean, that's the president's. As, as you know, I think, I think a huge number of presidents have given, I don't think, I know a huge number of presidents have gone to Gettysburg. And the, some of the most famous speeches that arise, Theodore Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, certainly FDR, focus on what North and South had in common. What they had in common is the courage of the American soldier. And so that is part of this, what I would call historical amnesia. Robert E. Lee became the, the top general of the Civil War. It wasn't Grant, it was 
it was Lee and Lincoln. <laughs> yeah. And Grant was in charge of mm -hmm. making the 14th and 15th Amendment meaningful in the lives of African-Americans. The fact that he and his administration in 1872 destroyed the Ku Klux Klan, yes. at least for that time. But as the, I don't think I mentioned the depression of 1873, that was a game changer. That was a changer for the Republican party and for Grant. In 1874, the Republicans lost the House of Representatives for the first time since before the Civil War. What did that mean? It meant that Grant could not send troops mm -hmm. to certain Southern states, especially Louisiana was a favorite, but it was also Mississippi and uh, South Carolina, where race riots would happen. And the race riots usually consisted in hundreds of Blacks being killed and white Republicans. Um, yeah along with it. Northern voters were sick of it. They felt that by 1874 and 1876, the South had accepted its loss, its military loss. What happened were small scale rebellions compared to the Great Rebellion. Sure, and, sure. And well, we, you, you will, your listeners will be informed in your next episode. <laughs> yes conditions of that so I won't go into it um so so we've talked about how Grant's reputation strong when he's alive starts to tank as he dies as veterans die as the lost cause takes hold but it, it does have a rebound and it, it as I see it it seems like roughly in the 90s people start to give him a second look he starts to really turn his reputation around what is the emerging view of Grant and what prompted that re-examination well, I, I think um, I think that the scholarship that started appearing, the history books, both popular and boring scholarship, that started appearing in the 1990s and have really been common lately in the biographies uh, that have been published recently by Ronald White and uh, by Ron Chernow. Evidently, now you have to have a first name of Ron to publish a biography of U.S. Grant. The magnificent volume on Grant's presidential years by Charles Calhoun, which I recommend. It's old-fashioned, good, dense political history and fascinating. But I think that the idea of Grant as a soldier statesman, who as soldier, I mean, from 1862 on, he was a primary mover and shaker in the Union cause. And as a soldier, he not only planned and executed military campaigns that were successful, but also executed Lincoln and the Republican Party policy in regards to emancipated people. Mm -hmm. He was well-versed in the difficulties that would be upcoming after the war. And there's a lot about this in the recent work. When uh, the war was over, I mean, of course, it wasn't really over in, in every sense of the word, but when the war was over, he looked forward to a leadership team that worked so well during the war, President Lincoln and General Grant, mm -hmm. in a way with the assassination of President Lincoln. I mean, I don't know if your listeners can imagine, uh, we think that the past four or five years have been tumultuous, but if you imagine the breakdown of the country that you live in, 
a vicious war, which leaves almost 700,000 men dead and untold damage in other ways. And the assassination of a president with the new president being a former slaveholder from the South, who has no ties to the Republican Party, was just stuck as vice president. And then an impeachment. Who do you turn to as president? There was no other candidate possible but Ulysses S. Grant. And historians are appreciating this as never before, beginning in the 1990s. And one of the things that has come up is Grant as a civil rights president. Yeah, yeah. And this is in his words and his deeds, and it's all in the record. Uh, People can check if they want to. He really was a president who was stalwart in his messages, in the appointments of African-Americans that he made more than anyone else. He had, uh, uh, until Lincoln, no one had had uh, shook hands with an African-American, no president. Well, Grant did it many times. He had meetings with African-Americans. He, the Republican Party had a number of African-Americans at their conventions. And this, by Grant's policy, his deeds and his actions and his writings and his speeches, he supported African-Americans. He also wanted white Southerners to accept this and he and, and also to be reconciled. So he had what Lincoln would have had, reconciliation with emancipation and its consequences. So how do you put those two things together? Mm-hmm. That is something that historians uh, are now looking at him and revising. In fact, that's why his, in the C-SPAN presidential survey, which I have been a part of, mm-hmm. and, and it's not only because of my higher ratings for Grant than the usual, he would be just above Buchanan or something, or maybe below Buchanan. <laughs> and <laughs> you can't get much lower than that, right? And he's been rising amazingly because I think people appreciate what he did in the face of incredible opposition, including by the time he left, most Republicans. I'd love to tackle some of the particular myths that you you mentioned about him and where they come from and how real or unreal they are. Uh, One is, let's dive a little more into that corruption allegation. How, How significant was it and how did it compare to say other presidents of the 19th century? Well, that's a- another great question. It's hard to understand how much corruption has been a feature of American political life and governance from the very beginning. Yeah, I- I'm not going to go through all that, but every single president that I've ever read about, and like you, I've read about, all <laughs> yeah. has had corruption issues. Why? Because we've always had the desire to make America the greatest economic engine in the world. Even in the 1780s and the 1790s and early into the 20th century, we're looking for trade. We're a great naval power, uh, became a great naval power because of trade. I mean, the whole point of the Republican domestic policy in the Civil War is embodied in three acts, the Um, the Transcontinental Railroad Act, the the Morrell Act, and what is the other one? Was Homestead Bill the third one? Homestead Bill, yes. All right, I got it. (laughs) Transcontinental Railroad Act, the Homestead Bill, and the Morrell Education Act, which were all intertwined, but meant to 
propel the United States to the economic nationalism that was a vision of first the Whig Party and then the Republican Party. This was it. And Lincoln was going to do this. The result of these three acts, which would be felt in many iterations throughout the last of the 19th and early the 20th century, brought about the rise of industrial capitalism, the rise of big business. And there's always the chance of corruption when business and government get together, when business needs government, whether it's a local or state or federal entity to help them with their business. And that's the Transcontinental Railroad, uh, that kind of project could not be built only private funds. It needed government money. Yeah. The famous Credit Mobilier, yeah. which is blamed on the Grant administration, was actually started and, and carried on under Andrew Johnson. But it was just normal. It was normal business. The, the corruption in the Indian agency, every single administration. The difference is we're talking about the, the Reconstruction and the Gilded Age period are really should be together. Yes. I, I teach them together in my Gilded Age class because you can't differentiate one from the other hardly. But the expansion of the economy during the Civil War did not begin the Industrial Revolution, but it, it put it on the, the path to this gigantic expansion and then traction in 1873 and, eight, and 1890. But that, it was just amazing, the growth. And so with that incredible growth and the the absolute necessity, for example, the Andrew Carnegie or John D. Rockefeller to get the approval of state legislatures to move their product through the state or to give them good deals. It just was ripe for corruption. The party in power would be the party most implicated because they had the most to get by it, right? So the uh, Republicans were always throughout the 19, uh, the night to the end of the 19th century, the party of big business. That's, that's what they did. And, and it, it featured part of it was a growing middle class and Grant presided over all of, of these vast changes. It didn't mean that that monetary policy was a huge issue after the civil war, gold versus silver as, as became an issue in the Gilded Age, and it was all very complicated. And so when you say, I don't know what president in some way or presidential administration has not had a scandal. Some are more, more famous than others, uh, um, but it's just, it's just, uh, it's a part of democratic governance that's very troubling. <laughs> <laughs> My bottom line to my students when I talk about this issue, I was reading uh, once a political scientist who was uh, discussing global corruption. And we think we have corruption, believe me, there's a lot of uh, huge, vast corruption going on around the world. Yeah. And this political scientist building on the work of others said, one of the, the key questions to ask was, a, was any given project that involved corruption finished? I mean, there's lots of, of corrupt governments and businesses who, who get all the money but never, do, never complete the project. So they're unfinished, but the, the railroads were finished.
So, so say the corrupt railroads that didn't get finished. Like I, I believe Credit Mobilier, which you mentioned, was one that never got finished. But there were others that did get finished. Okay, there were six transcontinental railroads that got finished and made a huge difference in trade. Yeah. And the steel industry, the United States, by the end of the 19th century, had the greatest steel industry in the world at that time. So bridges were built, uh, skyscrapers were built. Yep. So that's one way you can measure even the most corrupt city in our history. Well, Chicago and New York is kind of... I was wondering what you were going to say. Most corrupt city in our history. What's she going to say? Devil of the White City. Great one. All the big cities were. But New York, the biggest, baddest, most corrupt city. Sure. Brooklyn Bridge and, and Boss Tweed and the machines played a role in really uh, making the making immigrants feel more welcome. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like it's not so much that Grant's administration was corrupt because of Grant. It's because of the time. You have this special moment in U.S. history where industry is exploding and that leads to the corruption, and Grant just happens to be the guy at the top when it happens. Grant became a politician as his, his and Charles Calhoun does a good jo- uh, job, an excellent job in, in pointing this out. Uh, he became a skilled politician and a stalwart Republican when, where he wasn't at all, but in yeah. 68 particularly. He, he learned how to lobby for his agenda, to twist arms, Wield uh, patronage. He enlisted supporters in Congress. So there's a lots of things. There are lots of things that he did that that a president has to do. And he could have done better on corruption. He mm-hmm. had bad judgment in a lot of his appointments. I mean, it was very hard for him to become a politician. Yeah. But I think by the end of his term, he. That's probably why he wanted to leave the presidency. <laughs> totally. He had kept the union together, which, of course, that's what the whole fight was over for him. The fight was yeah. over the future of the union. And this time, the issues, unlike during the war, were not secession and slavery, but what kind of nation, admittedly grossly imperfect, would emerge at the end of the 19th century? And, and we have to look at that in the overall depiction to really kind of try and understand what were failures and what were successes. Many myths about Grant have been built or dismissed over the years. Are there any other commonly held perceptions of Grant that you would consider a myth, a fallacy, and you'd like to correct it? Well, I think think the two that have already been mentioned, uh, a drunk and a butcher. And I, I think that that historians have gone over his drinking over and over again, because if you are a casual reader of history or you ju- you're just happy to accept stereotypes about the past because stereotypes are really easy. Yes. You have yeah. to go beneath that stereotype and we accept it. It just seems, and, and I quote from Ron White and Ron Chernow as the latest two experts on Grant to write about this, they have tried and tried to find a, a typical pattern of alcoholism, which many of Grant's enemies said, oh, he was drunk in every battle and so forth and so on. Lincoln looked at this and decided that Grant wasn't a drunk, but it's that he did have a problem with alcohol in his life at times, but he wasn't what we would call the typical alcoholic that we're familiar with today. 
it seems like he he vanquished the problem through sheer will willpower except on, on some occasions uh, during the war but really nothing and i quote from ron chernow when he he says that grant really took this on alone and solved the, this problem of alcohol and he says quote this is Ron Chernow, it was one of the supreme triumphs of a life loaded with major accomplishments. And in, in my own work, I describe it as Grant rarely drank and never when it counted. There's no record of his drinking at, when he was president, uh, of his uh, imbibing alcohol to, uh, to an extent that would render him incapable of yeah. speech or anything like that. And the sex, so I, I would say he, he wasn't the, the out of control drunk by any means. In fact, it was the opposite. And he was not a butcher. Those of us who have studied war, not only civil war, but any war, any war anywhere knows that war is terrible. And that as warfare has combined with the rise in industry and machinery, it's become a, unbelievably bloody. The Civil War was like that. It was like that on both sides. Robert E. Lee was not a gentlemanly <laughs> commander. If you were in Robert E. Lee's army, you would ha you had the greatest percentage chance of dying because he used his men and he expected them to be aggressive. Grant was, was not a butcher. He did have more men, but it, to understand why it meant relatively little uh, when they invaded the South. The uh, Southern armies, and this would be particularly true in the Eastern theater, had an advantage. Mm -hmm. uh, and every single commander that Lincoln had in the Army of the Potomac, at the head of the army, the, beginning with McClellan and going through uh, Meade, uh, Grant kept Meade, but Grant was really, they had these incredibly bloody battles and then they withdrew. They stopped fighting. Grant never stopped fighting. And that's why he's called a butcher because of the Overland campaign where he took his army in 1864 across the Rapidan River in Virginia and just fought it out until the end. The advantages that of territory, of geography and of strategy that the Confederates had he wore it down. And then he, he also was commander of all the armies in the field from 1864 on. And he, uh, he, he was also uh, dictating strategy to other, er to other areas. So he was not a butcher in the way that people meet, that he didn't care. He cared deeply that, that all these men were dying. Thank you for clearing up those two very common myths, because you are right. Like, those are things that everybody assumes they know about Grant. On the flip side, what is your favorite story about Grant that nobody knows, but you would like to share? Many people don't know he was a somewhat passable painter. He was an artist and he painted scenes of Native American life at, at West Point. And if you go to the West Point Museum, uh, you can see his paintings there, a, a selection of his paintings. He was not a doofus, as he is so often portrayed, but a very articulate, thoughtful man who read many novels. He and his wife, Julia, made a habit of reading to their children every night. He also attended plays and he loved to travel. One of the things I like about him and like to 
I don't know if this is exactly a story. He had a great capacity for friendship. He was a admirable commander in that he, in the Civil War, he assembled around him these amazingly loyal men. And one of his best friends, probably his best friend was William Tecumseh Sherman. Mm-hmm. You've heard of him. Mm-hmm. They really had an incredible friendship. They were cadets together at West Point, although they weren't best friends then, but they reconnected when Grant called Sherman to his side in the period just before the Battle of Shiloh in 1862. One historian has characterized their relationship as partners in command, but it's more than that. They were, they really were funny together. They were intellectual uh, equals, although Sherman could never stop talking and Grant just liked to listen while smoking cigars. They both smoked cigars. And Sherman told Grant, quote, I knew wherever I was that you thought of me. And if I got into tight places, you would come if alive. And perhaps more famously and funnily, Sherman said, he stood by me when I was crazy and I stood by him when he was drunk. And that was a charge against Sherman. He was removed uh, from command because it was thought he was mentally unstable in the first part of the war. Yes. Grant was always fending off charges of being drunk. To Shiloh, Vicksburg, Chattanooga, when Grant came east to take command, he brought the Western men with him. He brought Sherman and Sheridan and McPherson. And of course, Sherman famously was given command of the Western Army through Georgia and then South Carolina and North Carolina. So there are many stories I wish I could tell, but time prevents me. Well, Joan, thank you so much. If you'd like to hear more from Joan, please check out her book, U.S. Grant, American Hero, American Myth, or enroll at UCLA. The book might be cheaper. Uh, Joan, thank you so much for your time. All right. Thank you so much. It was a delightful conversation. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends about the show, and leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. It's always good to hear from y'all. You can follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash Abridged Presidential Histories. This helps me buy books and pay to host the show. Thank you to everyone who has contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Olgar Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, I'll talk to historian Ronald White about the relationship between Grant and Lincoln and the impact Lincoln had on Grant's life and administration. That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories. <laughs>